All right, first things first, how are you feeling temperature-wise? Is it, is it warm in here or is it just me? Just, just right? Okay, so if you're not off, uh, David, that will be on you. I'm happy with like one or two people falling asleep, that is just par for the course. If the whole congregation is asleep by the end, that will be trouble. Um, you will need your Bibles. I had a PowerPoint, it was a very nice PowerPoint, but I forfeited my right to use that when I came in five minutes late. So uh, please, grab a Bible, we're going to be all over the place this morning. And so you will need one to follow along. I feel that I, I want to share this before we begin, which is um, last night, I, I'm not a person, who, I'm not a visual person. Lots of people like talking about visual learners. I'm not that at all. I don't see anything. Um, last night, I was thinking about um, preaching. I was, it was in that just pre-sleep moment. And I was thinking about preaching this morning. That, that's no surprise. Of course, that's going to be on your mind. As I was preaching, the... Um, you guys all disappeared, right? All, all of you guys disappeared, and the pews all disappeared, all the cinema seats. And what appeared instead was just a garden. It was like, you know, St. David's from a certain view, and just a, a beautiful, luscious, and vibrant, colourful, and fruitful garden. I don't know what that is, um, but I do believe that that suggests something about actually this section of scripture, which Central to it is that Jesus wants us to be fruitful people. And I believe we are fruitful people. I think as long as you have the Spirit in you, as long as you abide in Christ, as it said, you will be fruitful. And so I think we should think of ourselves in that way, in that organic way of connection to Christ, like a garden. No striving, no effort, no stress, just leaning on Him and bearing fruit. The section of Scripture that we're looking at is called by many the Farewell Discourse. It's Jesus' last words to his disciples before he goes to the cross and then rises and then ascends and then he's no longer with them. And so he's giving them the, the most important things he wants them to know in his absence. And for that reason, some of the things, a lot of the things that he says, like it's pretty obvious why he's mentioning them. He talks a lot about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit has never been poured out before and is going to be when he ascends. Um, he talks a lot about tribulation and uh, suffering because in his absence, the disciples will undergo great suffering. Um, but it's not obvious, I think, why he mentions prayer so much. You know, prayer is actually, a, it's a human universal. Did you know it's an impulse that every human being has? Because we were actually created for prayer. It's what Adam and Eve had in the garden. They enjoyed uh, this free speaking to God and hearing from God as he walked in the cool of the day with them. There was no impediment. They just spoke with him, heard from him. And so every religion on the face of the earth that human beings have devised has prayer in it, right? Because there's some sense of we actually need to reach out to our creator. Um, and even when you ask unbelievers, I don't know if any of you have ever asked people who don't believe in God whether they pray, You'd be startled by the response, um, which invariably is, yes, yes, I pray, or yes, I have prayed. Some atheists surprise themselves by their impulse to pray. And so I think there's a natural way in which we are all inclined to pray, simply because we're human beings, that we just go, I, I want to speak to my creator. That makes sense. But we are looking at this series, it's called Living in Christ. And what we're interested in, therefore is what it means to pray in Christ. And we should expect, I think, that that's going to differ actually a whole lot from how we are naturally inclined to pray just because we're human beings. You know, the disciples 
Amazingly, they were all Jewish men, right? They had their own prayer habits, a strong prayer tradition in the Old Testament, whole books that are just prayers, great examples of prayer. And yet when they saw Jesus praying, they said, teach us to pray. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that remarkable? They saw something in him so unique. You see it in that prayer in John 17. It's so unique how he prays. He say, teach us to pray like you. We don't know how to pray. We should have that same posture. So what is Jesus' way of praying? Well, we get some good insights into that in this section of Scripture. You saw from chapters 14 to 16, four times Jesus circles back to this topic of prayer. And then in 17, he ends the whole section by essentially embodying all that he has said about prayer in his own prayer. And um, I, I want to summarize what we're going to find this way. It's a clunky sentence, but I just wanted to get it all into one sentence. This is where we're going. Christian prayer is free and joyful conversation with our Creator in which we ask Him for all that we need to reflect Him with our lives and in which we actually expect to receive those things that we ask for. That is uniquely Christian prayer in contrast to everything else. Now distilled into that sentence are three um, P's of prayer. It's handy how this works out sometimes. The purpose of prayer the privilege of prayer and the promise of prayer. So that's where we're going. Firstly, the purpose of prayer. It's a, a fundamental question to ask, firstly, what is prayer actually for? And again, because we all, we all naturally pray, we're all human beings who reach out to God and pray, we think that the answer to that is obvious. Well, when I need something desperately, I ask God for it. When I want something a lot, I ask for it. When I'm experiencing suffering, my impulse is to pray. That makes sense. And none of that is discounted in Christian prayer, of course. There are examples of all of those things. We should bring those to God. But actually here in this section what we find is that prayer is specifically um, for calling on God to give us divine resources to fulfill the calling that he has called us to. You see, in John chapter 20, if you turn to John chapter 20, keep a finger in John 14. I don't think I actually got you to turn there. Um, John chapter 20, verse 21, on the other side of the resurrection, Jesus gives a very simple commission to the disciples, but it is profound. He says, John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. There is a world of implications in that one sentence, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So Jesus was sent, we saw it in his prayer, we see it all through the Gospel of John. Jesus was sent to reveal who the Father is. Jesus was sent as the light to the world, to show what God is like. And when Jesus sends us then, we are to reveal with our lives who Jesus is. And then by implication by who, uh, who the Father is. John himself puts a finer point on this in his own letter that he writes later on in 1 John 2 verse 6. He says, whoever claims to abide in him must walk as Jesus did. James is nodding off. Do we need to get those heaters down? <laughs> We're all good. Or shall I sit next to you for a little while and just preach just to you? Um, whoever claims to walk in him, uh, live in him must walk as Jesus did. He says later on, we have, we're going to have um, confidence in the judgment because as he was, so are we in this world. 
right? And I could enumerate the scriptures. They come from all over the place that say our whole job, I mean, Sean was referencing Jesus giving gifts to men before. Um, The reason that gifts are given to the church is to build us up into the head that is into Christ in every way, that passage says. That is what we are to do as a church. So when Jesus is um, speaking to them in this farewell discourse, what he's essentially saying to them is, I have fulfilled a certain role here in this world. I've shown this world who the Father is in what I've done and in what I've said. Now I'm going to leave a massive void when I go. And I expect you to step perfectly into that void. Not you individually, you as a church together to step into the void. We are literally the body of Christ, right, on earth. The representation of Christ. And so it makes sense that he would have to circle around again and again and again in that conversation and say, therefore pray. You're going to have to ask for some things. You're going to need some resources. And therefore, if you find in yourself that you don't have really a great desire for prayer and you want to stimulate that desire, the first thing that you ought to do is actually embrace this high calling that Christ has called you to, to recognise just how much he has asked us to do. Because if Christianity is simply about you know, believing in Christ and then getting through the day without sinning too much and doing the odd good deed when we can, when the opportunity presents itself, we can actually fool ourselves into thinking we don't need much help to do that, right? I can say a couple of rote prayers and, and get through the day doing that. But if we define Christianity as Jesus defines it, which is every day embodying who he is, right? Thinking like him, feeling like him, loving like him, doing the works he did, revealing with your attitude, with your behavior, with your words, who he is to all who come into contact with you. With your wife or your husband in the precincts of your own home, your own conversations, your own arguments, with your children, with your family, your friends, with your co-workers, with the people in the shop who serve you, with your enemies. Your job is to reveal who Jesus is to all of them. I heard a a great line in a sermon I was listening to last night. The guy said, as we exit the church, there should be a sign on the door as we go out saying, you are now entering the mission field. And that's essentially the picture here, right? Every interaction is to be revealing who Christ is. And if we set our sights on this and don't settle for anything less and go, this is actually what I live for, we're going to know immediately, man, I need help. Man, I need help. I don't love like Jesus. I don't have power like Jesus. I don't speak like Jesus. I don't react to disappointment and discouragement like Jesus. I'm going to need resources for that. So if we understand our calling rightly, the purpose, that will actually demand a lifestyle of prayer. Secondly, privilege, the privilege of prayer. Because if we stop just at at purpose, prayer can look kind of transactional. Like, here I am on mission for Jesus. I'm doing my job for him. So he does his bit for me by giving me what I need. And so we need to recognize that actually, first and foremost, um, we are not to think of prayer either as an entitlement that we have as Christians or as a chore that we have to perform, but actually as a privilege. The privilege of prayer is enjoying intimacy with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus absolutely saturates this farewell discourse with that kind of language of intimacy with God. So firstly in prayer, we enjoy the privilege 
of the Father's presence. John 14, 6, if you'll turn there. The most famous line, I suppose, of this section. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So before he is anything else for us, Jesus is our way to the Father. That's the most precious thing about Jesus, right? Not escape from hell, although that is true. <laughs> he gives us that. Not entrance into uh, new life for eternity, although he gives us that. The first and most important thing he gives us is the Father himself. Access to the Father. Because, as the psalm puts it, Psalm 1611, in the Father's presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand pleasures forevermore. Right? We were created to be in the presence of the Father. And again, when we come to prayer, our natural impulse really lets us down, I think, at this point. Because by nature, not only do those religions I was talking about you know, have their various ways of prayer, but they also all hint at this idea that we actually feel like we're distant from God and we need to make up for that distance somehow. And so you'll find in other religious traditions special ways of praying, special words to say, special mats to use, directions to face, postures to use special flags, special everything. Because there's this sense of we're actually alienated from our creator. We need to do something to get back. And I think if we are functioning in a, out of our natural way of praying, we also have that sense. My sin separates me from God. I can't just come back into his presence. Or I've just neglected this. It's been way too long since I've come to prayer. So I need to sort of prove that I'm on the right track before I really come to him warmly. Or maybe my feelings aren't right. I really should feel inclined toward prayer, but I don't, and so I feel kind of hypocritical. So I've got to wait for the feelings to come. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 6 that we are not to pray like the pagans. We're not to pray like religious people who think they will be heard because of their many words or their special mats or their ability to make up for that distance between us and God. No, we pray in Christ which means that everything that needs to be done to get you near to God has already been done by Jesus. Jesus has actually taken all of your sins in his body on the cross. And he took all of your sins before you committed any of them. They were all future sins. They were all sins you would commit as a Christian, right? He took all of them knowing that. He took all of them on himself and he died to deal with them once and for all and the work was finished. And then he rose again, actually, to give us new life so that we could be born again as loved children of God. So your job, when you come to prayer, is just one job. It's literally just to believe that he did that perfectly. He actually accomplished that perfectly, and therefore, I can just come before God and speak to him and enjoy his presence. Secondly, we have the privilege of conversational friendship with the Son. Chapter 15... And verse 14, Jesus says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from the Father I have made known to you. In the Old Testament there were... Uh, only two men who were called friends of God. Does anyone know who they were? Abraham. Here's some muttering. 
tongues, we need interpretation. Uh, Abraham, yes. Anyone else? Moses, that's right. Spoke to God like a friend, face to face. So Abraham and Moses, and if you know anything of their stories, right, they are special people. You're like, they heard from God in amazing ways. They spoke to God. There was this warmth of relationship. And Jesus tells us that actually under his covenant, all believers enjoy that status. Every believer is a friend of God. Every believer, Jesus' friend. And that friendship implies conversation. You see it there in verse 15, chapter 15. He says, I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Later on, he's going to say a similar thing, speaking about the Spirit, chapter 16 and verse 13. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So all of us enjoy, as Christians, uh, hearing the voice of Jesus. All of us enjoy friendship with Jesus. Back in chapter 10, he uses a different analogy but makes the same point. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now, some of you, I think, in this room, you're all over this, right? That's just your life. It's just every day expecting to hear from God. I think there are others who can be of a more skeptical frame. And I totally understand that because by nature, I'm the same way. Either you can be skeptical that God would actually speak in direct ways to people today. Will you really trust us with that? Or maybe, actually, it's more of a personal thing. You just go, I know people hear from God. I just don't think he'd speak to me. I just don't think he'd say anything to me. Why would he? If that's you, I want to encourage you just to open yourself up to the possibility that these passages are actually true of you. Earlier this year, through a, a variety of different circumstances, I was just encouraged to start taking these sorts of things more seriously. And not so much to ask God, speak to me, speak to me, speak to me, but to believe actually that as a child of God, as a friend of Jesus, I'm already being spoken to. And I actually need to posture myself to hear what he's saying. I actually need to open myself up to take the risk of going, maybe this scripture that I'm being bombarded with, there's something in here for me for today. Or maybe this thought that I've had that is like, that doesn't seem like it's coming from me and it seems like it's related to doing this thing, just going, I'm just going to go out on a limb. And sometimes that ends in slight embarrassment, foolishness, you know, hey, I think God's telling me to say this. Why would you say that? You know, there's a bit of that. But actually, there have been many occasions in which at the end of the whole process, when you've got the confirmation, actually, that was Jesus' voice, man, there's nothing sweeter to go, he spoke to me. He actually told me to do something. He actually revealed something to me. So open yourself up to this in prayer. And third, we have the privilege of the Holy Spirit actually dwelling inside of us and prompting our prayer. That's a wonderful thing that we can engage with in prayer as well. Not just praying what comes to our minds, but actually tuning into what the Spirit is saying. And as the New Testament puts it, praying in the Spirit. That's a whole topic on its own, so I'll leave that for Sean in, in a couple of weeks, what it means for that, the Holy Spirit to be inside of us. But first we need to recognise that when we pray, we pray to enjoy relationship with God. If you find yourself in a position in which you just feel like that hasn't been you recently, right? 
um, and actually your prayers have been a little bit more rote and a little bit more just asking and asking, just encourage you. Firstly, you can go straight back into the presence of the Father. There doesn't have to be any waiting time. Again, Jesus did everything that needed to be done. You can do that today. You can come back to him. He will welcome you like that father to the prodigal son. Um, but I'd also encourage you, maybe it's time to shake up the way you pray a little bit. If you're the kind of person who prays sitting down or kneeling by the bedside, maybe it's time to pace around, run around, jump around, dance around. Maybe it's time to, to sing, as Sean said at the beginning, come into the presence of God with singing, with praise. Maybe even pick up the old instrument that you haven't you know, looked at for a while. Write a song of praise to God. He doesn't care how, how bad it is, I can personally attest. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing, but we can do that. That's what relationship with God is. I want to tell you as well that this kind of relationship inevitably takes time, and that time is always time you can spend doing something else. It's not the kind of prayer that you can just fit into the margins of your life. In Jesus' own ministry, he started his ministry with 40 days without food and without water. The sacrifice of those things to pray to God as he was out in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. Jesus, throughout his ministry, very regularly would do, go without sleep in order to pray, right? He would get up early in the morning, it would say. It said he'd, he'd often do that. Uh, sometimes he spent the whole night in prayer before uh, calling the disciples, for example. The disciples actually did the same thing. And so for you, I want to encourage you not just to pray as you go, you know, not just to go, well, I've got a little bit of time here in the car, I've got a little bit of time here while I'm doing whatever else. All of those are good things, pray without ceasing. But relationship requires time set aside, a time and a place to meet with God. Maybe it means going without a sleep in, Maybe it means going without your lunch break, you know, once a week and just going, this is my time. I just meet with God right now. Maybe it means um, skipping some TV time in the evening. You know, this is my time to meet with the Lord. When we lean into that and we make those sacrifices, what we will actually recognize is that this is what we were made for. That's why this prayer is so wonderful because as Jesus says in his own prayer, John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they know you. So prayer is our opportunity to actually engage with that, with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Finally, the promise of prayer. Promise of prayer. Christian prayer is unique, not only in how we pray, how we go about it, but also in what we expect. In fact, that might be the defining mark of Christian prayer, that it's not this sort of, I go out on a limb, I throw out my request to God and we'll see what happens, see if the deity is happy with me or not. Actually, Jesus says here, that we actually can expect something in prayer. And I think that's the other reason that Jesus circles back to this topic of prayer four times in this discourse, essentially to say the same thing, because what he is telling us is what prayer is going to look like on the other side of the cross. When Jesus goes to the cross, he changes prayer forever. He reconciles you so perfectly with the Father. You so have his ear that now there is a new promise attached when we pray. And you saw it there, didn't you? I, I might not even have to repeat these, but I will. Uh, chapter 14, verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in my Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, 
Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 15 verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. And 16 verse 23. The last part there. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I say that these are promises attached to prayer rather than the power of prayer. You could talk about the power of prayer, but I think it's actually safer to talk about the promise of prayer because it's not that uh, we can sort of muster up, pray good enough, pray well enough to get stuff happening, right? It's that God has actually said, I, you've got my ear, and when you ask me, I'm going to respond. But there are two things that we can do here um, to these passages, I think. One, is, one danger is that we absolutize them, that we say, we, we forget about the purpose of prayer, that it's actually for Jesus' mission in us and in the world, we forget about the privilege of relationship with God, that it's actually a means of intimacy with him and he's our wise and loving father. And we actually just see it as what John Piper describes as like an intercom. You're in the lounge and you buzz the button and you ask the butler for some snacks, right? And you can read these passages and go, okay, he gives me whatever I want so I can ask for whatever I want. That's one danger. I actually think a greater danger in our own context is just dismissing these passages because they seem so outrageous. They seem so wild, right? They seem crazy that you just go, well, that can't be true. You think back on your own experiences of disappointment in prayer. Or you think about uh, maybe some examples of exceptions in the New Testament. What about Paul and his thorn in the flesh, you know? And if we're not careful, what we actually end up doing is creating a theology of prayer that is based not on the very simple rule that Jesus gives us here, but based on the exceptions. Not based on Jesus, our teacher, and what he says, but based on my experience and the times in which I haven't got what I've asked for. And so something that's thrown around very often is something like this. Well, God answers every prayer we ever pray. You know, it's wonderful. But sometimes he answers yes, sometimes no, sometimes later. And that makes a lot of sense, right? And there's a lot of wisdom. Yeah, I, I see that. But it's not what Jesus says. It's not how Jesus teaches prayer. Jesus doesn't say, he might say yes, he might say no, he might say later. We just saw it four times. He says, ask and you will receive. And we can think of God, well, God's a wise father and, you know, sometimes he's going to, he knows what's good for us. He's going to say yes or no based on his wisdom. We can't really know when he will say yes or no. But when Jesus talks about the fatherhood of God in prayer, he doesn't highlight the wisdom. He highlights the goodness. He says, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives, the one who knocks the door will be opened, everyone who seeks finds. And he says, which of you, if you had a father, uh, which of you as a father, if your son comes to you for bread, will give him a stone? Which of you, if, if you, your child comes to you and asks for fish, will give him a serpent? He says, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, your father will give good gifts to you. So I want to encourage us, even though that... That kind of formulation makes so much sense in experience. It should actually be confronting to us that Jesus never teaches prayer that way, ever. 
He says, ask and you will receive. And because he says that, it actually drives us to persistence in prayer so that we don't just go, well, I've asked him once and he's wise and he said no, so I guess that's it. But we actually go, hold on, I've got a promise here. I've got a father who is good here. I'm going to keep on asking. So I want to encourage us. Jesus is our teacher, not our experiences. And yes, there are mysteries and disappointments in prayer. Absolutely. There are mysteries. And I don't think it's healthy for us at all to introspect on ourselves, you know, and go, what was it in me? I didn't, again, I didn't pray good enough. I didn't pray well enough. And so this thing happened. That's never the point. The point is actually that there is a promise here. And I think we should consider that there is actually great untapped potential in prayer for us. This is an invitation from Jesus. Jesus doesn't say this to condemn us. Jesus says this to invite us into something. Little is promised to a once-off prayer in Scripture. Little is promised to just a, I said I'll pray for you, so I will. But much, everything is promised to persistent prayer. And it's not only in the Bible, it's in church history. You hear of George Muller, you know, looking after 100,000 orphans just by prayer, right? Never asking for support, just calling on God. I heard the other day of a man named Dr. Jun Gon Kim, uh, a leader in South Korea who was planning a, um, a rally, an evangelistic rally in which 16 million people were expected to attend. It was cancelled by authorities because of health concerns. And his response was not disappointment or discouragement or a little bit of prayer. He actually went with a bunch of leaders up onto a mountain for 40 days and fasted and called on God to change their minds. And when they came back down, the authorities said, okay, you can go ahead. And one million souls were won. Or uh, in our own day, someone like Heidi Baker, who uh, prays uh, regularly for, I would say, I mean, it must be thousands, tens of thousands of children in Mozambique, and has seen scientifically verifiable, you can ask me for the paperwork afterwards, scientifically verifiable healings of hundreds and hundreds and thousands of children. So we should ask the question, rather than what are the exceptions here or how does this stack up with my experience, maybe we should ask the question, what if I gave myself to prayer like this? What if I accepted the invitation and really got down on my knees and pleaded for what I needed? I want to invite us to a childlike posture in prayer, a less sophisticated theology of prayer. When children are secure, when they know that their parents love them, what do they do when they need something? They ask. But what if, what if Jared, and you know this from experience, what if they don't get what they want the first time? Is that, is that it? One and done? <laughs> they keep on asking, don't they? That is actually what defines your relationship with your kid. Like all day, every day is them asking and you then eventually caving and giving. <laughs> and amazingly, you know, amazingly for us as parents, like you get frustrated by that. You're like, why are they asking so much? This must be like a product of the fall. This is sin. But it's not. That's how God actually wants us to define our relationship with him. That is what parenthood and childhood is. It's us asking and him giving. We see in the early church that they experienced disappointment at times. And they never met that disappointment with discouragement. And okay, I guess we shouldn't pray anymore. In Acts 12, an amazing thing ha happens. One of the pillars of the church, James, dies. He's run through with the sword. He's gone. He's no more. He was an important man, actually a man of prayer. And what the church doesn't do is go, well, I guess like God hasn't 
you know, even in these scriptures, it, it says, like, God hasn't promised us that we won't face suffering. Jesus says, I don't pray that they don't suffer. But what did the church do anyway, instinctively? In verse 5, when Peter is arrested in the same persecution, it says, fervent prayer, earnest prayer was made by the church on his behalf, and they saw a miraculous recovery. So if you are one who has seen disappointment in prayer and found discouragement, I just encourage you, keep on hanging on to God. Like Jacob, keep on wrestling with God and asking him for breakthrough in those specific areas. And even if you do feel like you've received a firm no, that can happen. Paul received a firm no, okay? And he heard it from Jesus. No, it's not going to happen. My strength is sufficient for you. Don't be discouraged in asking for the next thing. When I say no to ice cream for the kids, they don't um, neglect to ask me to play the lion game with them after. They don't go, well, he's, I guess he doesn't want to give me anything, so I'm not going to ask for anything again. You know, don't be discouraged. Because there is a great reward in answered prayer, two great rewards. Firstly, Jesus says here that when you ask and receive, God is glorified. You know, everyone who has prayed for that prayer need rejoices and goes, God is good. God is real. God is good and he hears us. And he says, when your prayers are answered, he says, your joy will be full in chapter 16. That is, when we gather around and pray for something, we see God come through, we go, man, he loves us. And we rejoice in that reward. So don't hedge your bets in prayer. Don't pray just general prayers. Take a risk. Go out on a limb and call on God. The Anglican Bishop of Tasmania, Richard Condy, pastored a church in Melbourne called St. Jude's. It was a flourishing church, a planted city on a hill that many of you would have known about. Had a great ministry there. And at the end of his ministry, he was asked, what is your greatest regret in your time there? It's a wonderful question, isn't it? And he said, my greatest regret actually has to do with the fact that God answered all of my prayers. And the interviewer said, why is that a regret? That sounds like a good thing. And he said, I should have prayed bigger prayers. That should be our posture. Pray those big prayers, call on God to act. So to conclude, 15, chapter 15, verse 7, brings everything together that we've said in one sentence. Here's where Jesus gives actually the only conditions on our prayers being answered here. Chapter 15, verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So I want to ask you today, are you abiding in him? Are you actually taking time and making the sacrifices to actually enjoy that relationship with God? And if we don't just come to ask, we come to enjoy. Does his word abide in you? Does it find a hospitable welcome in your heart when you read what he says to you, when you hear what he speaks to you? Or do you find reasons actually not to live to reflect him in every relationship, in every circumstance? Are you actually living for that calling that he has called us to, to be the light of the world in his absence? If so, ask whatever you wish. Ask for it all. Pour yourself out and it will be done for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are indeed our Father. We bless you that access has been granted. That whether we recognise it or not, the breadth, the length, the height and the depth of your love cannot be measured toward us. 
We thank you, Father, that through Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Lord, I want to pray for us that every one of us maybe who has been distant from you, maybe feels that sin has separated us from you, would come back and enjoy your presence. We thank you, Lord, that you enjoy our presence when we come before you. Lord, please give us that um, understanding that we would just have it settled in our hearts that we are right before you. And Lord, we ask as well that you would just renew in us that calling, that purpose that you've called us to. As the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sends us. Lord, may that just be ringing our hearts as we go out into this world, into every interaction, and even when we're just by ourselves, Lord, that we would do all that we do to honour you. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us a really childlike posture in prayer. We hear what you say here. It challenges us, Lord, a lot. It challenges our experiences. You have to know that, Lord. You knew that when you said it. We pray that you would help us to actually submit to your word here and trust that for the one who believes, nothing shall be impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.